Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Glenn Stevens, a neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Rose Ella Burkhart Brain Tumor and Neuro-Oncology Center. Dr. Stevens is also the host of another Cleveland Clinic podcast, Neuropathways. Today, he's on the other side of the microphone as our guest to talk to us about treatment of recurrent glioblastoma. So, welcome, Glenn. Thanks, Dale. Great to be here and on the other side of the glass. Tell us a little bit about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. So, uh, Dale, I am currently acting as section head of adult neuro-oncology at the Cleveland Clinic. I joined the Cleveland Clinic in 1992 so 30 years, uh, and if I'm not careful, it's going to turn into a career. The uh, We currently have five adult neuro-oncologists. We've done some good recruiting in the last uh, year or so, and we actually have a sixth neuro-oncologist starting uh, in June. We're a fully integrated uh, brain tumor center, and we have been so for over 25 years. And what that means is that we took neurosurgeons that just did tumor, radiation oncologists that do brain tumor, medical and neuro-oncologists that did brain tumor, and we put them in the same cost center. We live in, as you know, in the cancer center, uh, and we see all of our patients essentially in the cancer center, and we work uh, in an integrative fashion with multidisciplinary clinics. So if a patient comes to see us, they can see the surgeon, the radonc, and the medonc at the same time. We also have the benefit of having our own research uh, team. Uh, we can integrate through CCF or through the uh, cancer center, uh, but we have our own independent research coordinators, uh, regulatory folks, and nurses to allow us to do phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials, of which uh, we try and do as many as we can. There you go. You you are a very productive group when it comes to research, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of that research. Part of the we're going to talk about is glioblastoma and, and looking at ultrasound and blood-brain barrier disruption. We'll talk a little bit about that, but a lot of people might be listening that might not necessarily know a lot about neuro-oncology, so maybe we'll start basic. What What is glioblastoma? So glioblastoma, Dale, is the enemy. The term was coined in around uh, 1924 or so, and then uh, historically for my whole career, we called it glioblastoma multiforme, GBM. Although in 2016, the World Health Organization came out with their newest classification of tumors, and they decided to get rid of the term multiforme. But I'm sure that if you went to the computer and Googled anything, you would see the term written as uh, glioblastoma multiforme. The multiforme part uh, really arose from the fact that it was a very heterogeneous type of a tumor. So it seemed very descriptive for it. And exactly why they decided to get rid of the multiforme part, I'm not sure. But now we just call it glioblastoma. Well, I think if we keep it GBM, it confuses the med students as well. Well, we, we want to do whatever we can to keep the med students off balance. Uh, if you're a connoisseur of, of uh, all things neuro-oncologic, the World Health Organization classification for tumors of the central nervous system came up with their newest edition uh, in around December of 2021. So it's pretty fresh, hot off the press. And a lot of changes were made. We won't go through those today, but a lot of changes were made 
that actually impact the diagnosis of GBM, have incorporated more molecular diagnosing, uh, not just phenotype, but phenotype and genotype into it. And it's an ever-evolving field, but probably 30 different types of, of brain tumors that we look at had classification changes. And that will continue. They'll probably do another one in a few years, uh, but very active field. And it really influences in some ways patient entry into clinical trials, because if you have to have a certain name of a tumor to go into a trial, you have to fulfill the criteria that we would call that tumor, whether it's a GBM trial or something else. So you really need to be up to date on what the classification of tumors are. Now, the simple answer is you can send them to us and we'll take care of all of that. I mean, I guess it, uh, it's probably best from a treatment selection and specificity as well. So much like I treat sarcoma and it, that's not a disease, it's a collection of diseases, mm -hmm. which all behave much, much differently. We can tailor disease treatments much more easily. Exactly. And I think that, you know, we want to be have precision and accuracy in everything that we do and you know, all of these things are done because, you know, in the old days, we'd look underneath the microscope and we would say, well, there's astrocytic cells that are there. There's too many cells. There's some mitoses there. There's vascular proliferation with blood vessels and necrosis. It's a GBM. But we know that your GBM is not necessarily my GBM and the, the genetic molecular makeup of our tumors may be very different. So we really need to get uh, more precise. And patients want precision medicine, and they want treatments tailored to them. Uh, and I think that's where the field is going. Now, what do we know about GBM? GBM is the most common primary malignant tumor of adults. So we see a lot of it. Incidence is about 3.2 per 100,000. Uh, median age is around 64 years. And Average life expectancy, I'm sad to say, is somewhere around 15 months to 20 months uh, from diagnosis, so not what we want it to be. It affects uh, males a little more than females, although there's not huge number discrepancy there. Uh, the initial treatment is uh, surgery because we need to make a diagnosis. We try and do a surgical resection if we can, as opposed to just a biopsy. The reason that we want to resect, if possible, is that we want to be able to do all those molecular testings, right? All the next generation sequencing, try and figure things out. And a lot of these molecular tests can um, help us not only with what treatments we might want to use, but also prognostically. And that can help patients make an informed decision how they want to move forward. If the tumor is very deep and we can't do a resective surgery, then we have all the other tools in our belt here. We may do something called LIT, laser interstitial thermal therapy. LIT is a, a thermal therapy where we essentially cook the tumor. So it allows us to biopsy and then heat it to a certain temperature to kill the tumors that are there. So this is good for deep-seated tumors, thalamic tumors. But again, uh, the biopsy is just giving us a small piece of tissue that we can't do a lot of testing on. After we have tissue, typically patients are treated on the what we call the Stup regimen based on a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, boy, back, I think, in 05. Way too long ago. Yeah, a long time ago. And it looks at the combination of radiation therapy and chemotherapy and showed that adding chemotherapy to the radiation therapy in the upfront setting uh, allowed patients to have longer survival. They do approximately six weeks of radiation given five days a week. 
uh, for six weeks in chemotherapy. We typically use temozolomide. It's given seven days a week. Over the six weeks, we take a one-month break. Then they get a follow-up MRI scan, and if all looks okay, we give them higher doses of the temozolomide in the adjuvant setting for up to six months, given five days out of a 28-day cycle. And we also, at that point, can discuss with them giving tumor-treating fields. And tumor-treating fields is one of these different types of treatments where we put on a shaved head, we put almost looks like defibrillator pads, and it's giving a low-dose electric current to kill cells that are in mitosis. And there's another drug that's also approved uh, that uh, you're very familiar with called Avastin or Bevacivimab. It's a monoclonal antibody directed against VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, uh, and it is used in the recurrent setting. But what we're most interested in is clinical trials for patients. And I think that if we're talking life expectancies of what we just mentioned, we should be talking about clinical trials. And our goal is to have a clinical trial for every patient if we can. If you go to the NCCN guidelines and you look at what are the treatment recommendations for GBM, you'll see written in the NCCN guidelines, look at clinical trials. Uh, So I think we'll probably transition to that in a minute, but that's really the crux of where we need to go. Why are these tumors so difficult to treat? Multiple reasons, but a few of them include the infiltrative nature. They're very infiltrative tumors. They are not surgically curable. We still recommend a maximal safe resection, but if it's in an area that we're going to certainly hurt somebody, it doesn't make sense to do surgery. But it does allow us to do next-gen sequencing, so that's good. The tumor heterogeneity that we mentioned with the multi-formality issue to it, uh, we've blocked everything individually, right? We blocked this pathway, that pathway, all the second messenger pathways with individual drugs. You know, this isn't Gleevec. You know, we can't just give a drug and and give a magical cure here. It'll just find a different pathway. And of course, what we're going to discuss here mostly today is the blood-brain barrier. It's there for a purpose, right? It wants to keep things out of the brain. And most of the drugs we use or you would use to treat sarcoma, aren't going to go to the brain because the drugs are too large, they've got the wrong charge particle, the lipidicity is not correct. There's a lot of reasons we want to uh, keep things out of the brain so those drugs don't get into the brain. So things that may work really great outside the brain can't get it into the brain. So we need to look at things that allow us to get something into the brain. So we're going to talk about ultrasound as a way to to get things into the brain. Is that that correct? Yes. Can you give us a a brief history of this? Because this has been a a challenge for a long time, this blood-brain barrier. And there have been a number of attempts to disrupt that blood-brain barrier and get therapies across. What what has been kind of the primary reason those have failed in the past? Yeah, so I'll mention a couple of things. One is that, you know, many years ago, we ran a blood-brain barrier program here for primary CNS lymphoma. And what we did is we used mannitol. Uh, And the blood-brain barrier is formed by very tight junctions between the endothelial cells and essentially is the Berlin Wall that's up there. We need to open that wall up. Maybe we need Reagan. Maybe. Tear down that wall. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. You know, we used mannitol to try and disrupt the barrier. Now, we do know naturally things disrupt the barrier. When we do an MRI scan on somebody and we we give them gadolinium, and we see gadolinium enhancing in a glioblastoma, the reason that it enhances or the gadolinium gets into the brain is because the tumor causes significant brain edema or swelling, and that opens the blood-brain barrier and it allows the gadolinium to get in, and we can see it in the brain. 
But when we were looking at primary CNS lymphoma, we looked at it as a very chemosensitive tumor. And we wanted to try and decrease the amount of radiation we're giving patients. So we were giving mannitol intraarterially. So we were putting catheters into the brain, and then we we're giving the mannitol under general anesthesia to open the blood-brain barrier and then give them high doses of methotrexate intraarterially to try and treat the tumor. But as you can imagine, a very invasive procedure. You know, uh, patients would be treated monthly for a year, and we would have to inject in one of the four major arteries uh, twice during each month cycle. So it's a very invasive procedure. Uh, we could potentially give mannitol only, uh, but again, doesn't seem to work as well. And part of the negative of just doing this focal opening of the barrier is it allows all other things to get in. And if patients are on other medications, uh, then they may go into the brain and cause a negative consequence or problem. And then how do you shut the barrier? Well, one drug we know that can shut the barrier is steroids. So we have to be very careful with steroid use because if we use too much steroid, it can actually close the barrier and make it more difficult to, to give uh, drugs. Of course, we mentioned Avastin earlier. Avastin, very good at closing the barrier. So there have been a number of other drugs that have been looked at over time, bradykinin analogs and various types of things, but nothing has really been shown to be very fruitful. So ultrasound been around for a long time. You know, back in the 40s, uh, they looked at focus ultrasound a little bit different than what we're using. We'll talk about two things here. We'll talk about high frequency, which is ablative and heat, and low frequency, which is what we use, which is non-thermal. And what happened historically is that uh, they want to use thermal therapy to treat brain tumors. We thought, let's just cook the tumors, sort of as I mentioned with the laser interstitial thermal therapy. And the fundamental principle of focus ultrasound is really analogous to a, a magnifying glass. So you take a magnifying glass and you want to carve your girlfriend's initials in the wood. You take the beams of sun and you bring, I always tell patients this and they look at me like, uh, where am I from? And you want to carve their initials into the wood. It's the same thing. You take the focused beam ultrasound and you put it through a series of arrays and it can thermally heat up and, and cook an area. But as you can imagine, back in the 40s when they did this, where do you think all that energy is going? Right on the skull right? So people would have a lot of burns and those types of things. And it was very hard to penetrate the bone. And some individuals, their skull is thicker than other individuals. Uh, so you'd get a lot of attenuation of the beam for the focus ultrasound. So a lot of problems in the 40s, uh, although there was a lot of interest and it kind of died away a little bit. And then they said, well, let's just do a craniotomy. You know, let's just put a big hole in the brain and do the focus ultrasound. Well, you know, that works. Uh, you can do that, but then people have a big craniotomy <laughs> and they weren't so excited about that otherwise. You know, if you're going to do a craniotomy, then why not just go in and resect the tumor uh, at that point? So patients, uh, you know, as they usually do, vote with their feet and their feet said, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, they're, they're moving in the other direction. So the real big development was MRI. And MRI uh, allowed us precision and accuracy, allowed us to be able to target lesions and could use real-time thermal monitoring in an MRI machine. So that's the beauty of the MRI is you can do the scan, you get perfect anatomy, you can see exactly where you're treating. So when you're doing targeting for your X, Y, and Z coordinates, you know, you can go exactly where you want to go and you can treat very small lesions or you can treat big lesions and you can do real 
real-time thermography in an MRI. And then they came out with multi-channel arrays and transducers for focused ultrasound. So you can have targets or beams coming in from multiple areas so you can dissipate the heat and you're not causing it so much. And we started to understand better whose skull is too thick or whose skull isn't too thick. I suspect you'd have a problem. Uh, this is what I thank you. I, this is well. This is what I hear about you. Very <laughs> thick-headed. So you know they they'll do CTs, and if people have too thick a skull, then they may not be able to do it. Or if they've had a lot of surgery or hardware or those types of things, they may not be able to do the treatment. Uh, but in 2016, the FDA approved high-frequency focused ultrasound, this thermal treatment for tremor. So we do a lot of this at the Cleveland Clinic, and it's usually done on the same day that we do our treatments. Done in the same machine, uses a different transducer because there's high R's low, but a lot of every part of it is the same. And we normally would do a case because we have to give them chemo afterwards, which we'll get into. So we kind of bump them till later in the day. But it's a great thing to see with with, uh, treating tremor in these patients because it's a very obvious thing, right? Someone's got a hand that's shaking quite a bit. They're awake and alert. They're in the MRI. They can give them low doses of of ultrasound, lower heat doses, and give a mild ablation. And they can then test people, have them do an Archimedes circle or writing or finger pointing, and they can see, hey, I really think I'm where I should be, and my tremor is attenuated a certain amount, so now I can give them the full dose, and I can cause an ablative lesion. So we have been doing that uh, for the last few years, so it was a natural transition for us because... 80% of the procedure is similar type of things that we're doing. We just had to get a different transducer. uh, And the company Insight Tech asked us if we'd be interested in in looking at doing LIFU or low-intensity focused ultrasound to open the blood-brain barrier. So for all the things mentioned to you earlier about what a problem it is, this is a real interest to us. What kind of time frame from a treatment standpoint? How long is a person in MRI actually getting treated? Yeah, so it's a it's a good question. And one of the negatives of the high frequency ultrasound is that patients are being treated for tremor, so we really can't give them medications because we don't want to give them sedatives or medications that are going to affect the tremor. One of the benefits of the low intensity is that we can give them medication uh, for their tremor. And everybody likes a little bit of medication if you're going to be in an MRI for a long time. But you know, the the trial that we're doing is a phase one clinical trial. And as you know, a phase one clinical trial is really a safety trial. It's not an efficacy trial, although everybody wants to know about efficacy, but it's really a safety trial. And it's for recurrent GBM. So these are people that have gone through the radiation, gone through the chemotherapy, and have recurrence, and we're treating them in the recurrent setting. And it takes place in neuroradiology. And what happens is the patient shows up about 6.30 in the morning. I know it's early. It's early. And on the initial trial that we had, we had to shave the head for patients. Now, like everything, things start to progress forward and they don't have to have a shaved head now. Uh, They can have short hair. Uh, But we would uh, shave their head. We would give them some Versed and some uh, morphine so they're a little bit lighter. And then we have to affix a head frame to them. So we essentially bolt a head frame to them because we have to have something that is stereotactic in space that's not moving so that even though we're not lesioning a tiny area, we can't have something moving. It has to be fixed. So we bolt a head frame to them. But once the frame's on, it's very comfortable. And then we have to place a bladder around them. So we put on this silicone bladder uh, that goes around the head. 
that will then connect to the transducer and be filled with water. And the benefit of that is that it dissipates any heat. With the low frequency, it's not a big issue. We still generate heat with the ultrasound, but not like the high frequency people. But it's hooked up to a multi-array transducer to give the ultrasound through various areas. And uh, they're then in the MRI machine. And they're there, uh, you know, usually about four hours. But it depends on uh, what we're treating. So they'll get an MRI first with the transducer on. We'll have had MRIs previously and drew out the target. It's probably not going to change. But we treat what's called the leading edge or the flare part of it. You know, not we also treat the enhancing part, but we want to treat this the highest percentage area that has tumor. And when we first started doing the clinical trial, we could only treat about 30 cc's. And then as the trial progressed and it was safe, we could treat a larger volume. So by the end, we were able to treat 110 cc's, which is a pretty big area of individuals. And what we do is we do individual sonications. So we can treat, if we had 110 cc's, we can only treat small areas at a time. Now, hopefully, as the software and hardware develop, and I'm, I'm thinking hopefully in a year from now, we'll be able to treat much larger areas at a single time, which I think will decrease our time in half or maybe even a fourth, which will then make it a lot easier to do and a lot better for patients. But we do a sonication where in real time, it takes about 90 seconds, we can give a certain amount of energy and we can see visually on the MRI scan the disruption that is taking place. We can actually see the, the changes in real time and we can do what's called T2 star imaging and we can see the changes on the imaging in patients. So, you know, 90 seconds, two cc's at a time, you know, 110 cc's, you can do the math and figure out how long it's taking. So it's a long time uh, that people are in the scanner, but you know what? In the phase one clinical trial, which is we finished the last patient a couple of weeks ago, their sixth treatment, there was one patient that wasn't able to complete the time period. And I guess, was there an escalation phase where you, you mentioned you were doing larger volumes where you're also altering the energy? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And, you know, I think that there are parameters of, of how we can give the energy and how much energy, because, you know, the concern is also too much energy. Maybe we cause too much internal change and maybe we actually we're going to cause some lesions. So I would say that, so there were parameters and yes, we did change the energy and, and uh, as we went, but obviously we're within the confines of how far we could go. And sometimes if you're you know, you learn a lot of things. If you're near a surgical cavity, it can be a bit of a sinkhole. You may need more energy to be able to cause cavitation to open the barrier. So a lot of things were learned as we went through. And so I guess uh, considering it's a phase one safety trial, I'll ask the obvious question, which is um, any early word on efficacy? So I'll start by saying that safe looks good right? Looks safe. We had no uh, bleeding issues. You know, one of our concern is would, would people have some bleeding related problems from the procedure? We did not see that at our site and uh, we'll see when all the data comes out and published, but my understanding was not an issue. And uh, we didn't see significant neurologic symptoms related to the treatment in a negative way. So that's good. Or as you mentioned, things like concomitant medications, crossing blood brain barrier, things like that. Yeah. So one of the, one of the keys is patients couldn't be on a bunch of steroid 
And I think two milligrams was the lowest dose of steroids they can be on, which is a pretty low dose of steroids. But we did not have to escalate steroids on any of our patients. We did not get cerebral edema as a side effect of the treatment, which was very encouraging and helpful. And we didn't have progressive neurologic symptoms afterwards, which was very uh, helpful as well. And You know, I'll just tell you because you asked me nicely, you know, the goal was to treat with six cycles of carboplatinum, you know, and you've used carboplatinum quite a bit in your, in your time. That's a lot, right? To do that. And, you know, there were sites, there were only a a handful of sites that were doing the study, a group in Israel, a group in, in Toronto and a group in Korea. And I think two others in the States, uh, were doing the study. Uh, but I can tell you that we got so excited with the last patient that we treated. And you can't take much from a single patient, but I tell you, it helped us all get up in the morning. Uh, And this patient has a recurrent glioblastoma, was able to do the full six cycles. Uh, And, you know, I was talking to his wife at the sixth treatment and she told me, you know, I said, how do you do after the fifth cycle? And she said, well, we went to Disney World with the kids and we walked, we were there for five days and walked about 40 miles in the five days. Uh, So we did pretty good good. uh, that was there. But, you know, the, the great thing about it was that he was able to get through the six cycles, didn't have a problem, uh, neurologically uh, completely intact, and his tumor significantly shrunk. Now, I would say that was not uh, the usual situation for uh, most of the patients, and our goal is to stop it from growing. But one of the things that we get excited about clinical trials is even if trials turn out to be negative trials, and this will clearly go to new phase trials, there are always individuals within the clinical trial that it turns out to be a really good treatment for. And it just allows people to do something that they couldn't have done. You know, this is something that he never would have done. And maybe if we just gave my V carboplatinum afterwards, the barriers open, he would have done as well. But, you know, six months of treatment and his tumor was smaller than it started, where the average efficacy for a recurrent GBM trial uh, response rate is 15%. It's a pretty slow number, yeah. you know, with progression at four months. Yeah. Uh, so here we are six months out when we did the last treatment and his tumor was smaller. Uh, so again, I think that this is a technology that's really more a proof of principle and we'll get more interesting drugs to give uh, as we go along. But um, looks like it's pretty safe. If we can cut down the treatment time, make it a little more tolerable for patients. They're also looking at trying to do a frameless-based system uh, so there's less of that than uh, something that we're all excited about. Wow. Well, it sounds like uh, you've stumbled into something here that old principles, new techniques that uh, look pretty promising. So, Yeah, we're excited. We're actually with the same company going to be starting a new trial uh, in GBM patients where we, uh, and this is really starting to get out there now, but using something called 5ALA. ALA is, uh, uh, I would say it, but we won't be able to spell it on there, uh, avulonic acid. But it is, a, it is a drug that is used in neurosurgery um, to light up GBM. You know, it's taken into the GBM and you can uh, fluoresce it so you can see where it is. And you can use photodynamic therapy to sort of affect the oxygenation and kill cells. It's used in in dermatologic. Uh, But there's also some preliminary data to look at using sonication to take uh, this uh, ALA that's in GBM patients. And it can then, through sonication, kill the GBM cells. So we're... Uh, just through the IRB, and hopefully we'll be putting our first patient on trial in the next month or so. Well, Glenn, somehow you've managed to take a really bad disease 
and uh, tell us about some new therapies that give us some hope. So, well, well done. Well, I like your term, and hope is what it is, right? I mean, we all know what it is, uh, but we need to do better than we're doing, and the only way we're going to do that is trials. So, those of you listening out there, uh, just encourage you to uh, look at clinical trials for your patients. We're happy to see them. If they're somewhere close to where you are that are doing clinical trials for this or other cancers, uh, don't be afraid of it. It just allows your patients access to things that they're not normally going to get. And for them, it may be the right thing. It's outstanding. Thanks for being with us. Dale, I really appreciate it. It's great being on the other side. I think I yap way too much, and I apologize for that. Oh, no worries. uh, It's great information. Thanks, Ben. To make a direct online referral to our Tossig Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.